Friends, it is good to be with you this morning, and we are in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we have been uh, plugging away through several different things at the beginning of this year. Um, the first Sunday was just highlighting where we're headed for uh, this year, a, a theme of finding our joy in God, and how um, all the subsequent series that we do and events, they're all kind of working towards that end. Uh, last week, we took some time just to try to listen to one another, specifically around friendship. Uh, there was an articulation of hurts um, of regarding how hard it is to make friends and to keep friends and how friends are different now than they used to be, and we really sought to address how we can have God-glorifying friendships. Um, today will be one more sermon along the lines of Friendships, but even deeper than that, it's highlighting a core value of our church that has been from the beginning, and we, it's because we believe it's core to the heart of God, and that is racial or ethnic harmony. Now, if you're a guest with us, we regularly go through books of the Bible and just let those books of the Bible kind of determine what we talk about. So it's a rare thing that we would have kind of three messages kind of back-to-back addressing specific topics. But we thought in light of our nation as a whole in these days and times, in light of Martin Luther King weekend, um, that we wanted to take some time to address these issues uh, regarding racial harmony. So we'll be focused in on that today, and then next Sunday we will start um, a series in the book of Jonah. So that's where we're headed, and I would love to read from Ephesians chapter 2 for us, and then after that... I will pray and we'll dive right in to what the scripture has to say about what Christ has purchased so that we might be one people and not a divided people. The word of God says this. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. 11 through 16. Therefore, remember at one time, You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your kindness to us that cannot be repaid and cannot be matched. Your love never gives up. It never fails. Lord, and we just thank You that You are stronger than we are. And in our weakness, Your strength is made perfect. So right now, I just ask, God, I ask that in that one who came with a fragile heart this morning, 
One filled with sadness or filled with fear. One plagued by anxiety or just loneliness. That God, You would tenderly, as only You can do, scoop that one up. Comfort them with the fact that Your mercy is new every morning. And that if you can overcome sin, Satan, and death on the cross, you can meet them at their point of pain. God, I pray for Your comfort to come over and wash over us like a flood. That we might know the beauty of Jesus this morning and might celebrate Him with all of our hearts. And Father, I pray for those ones who might have come in here bitter, struggling to forgive, having a hardness of heart, and I pray that You would shatter the hardness. And I ask that You would remind and expose the degree of Your forgiveness so that there would be not only vertical forgiveness, we would receive forgiveness from You, but we would extend it to one another. I ask that You would break the heart of rebellion and make it a soft heart of love for You and for others. So now as we talk, God, I pray that we would spend this time worshiping You, standing in the shadow of Your cross, and being strengthened by Your Spirit to love one another intentionally. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Racial tension is alive and well today. This should not be a newsflash. I remember the first time when I was younger, I watched the movie Hotel Rwanda about the Hutus and the Tutsis and about the genocide that was taking place in that country. It began to open my eyes to the fact that genocide exists and it takes you back to the, war, the times of World War II when there was systemic um, killing and a seeking to get rid of based upon ethnicity, whether it were Jews or whether they were Polish or whatnot, these concentration camps. And my eyes began to just be opened of how this is happening all over. Wars in countries based upon ethnic lines, based upon a sense of hatred for another because of skin color and because of how that culture brings some other cultures to bear. And people don't like that kind of change. It brings tension. It's the same where some of our international workers are today in Turkey, where you would, if you were in that country, the primary tension would not be between blacks and whites or uh, with Hispanics. It would be among Kurds and Turks. And in that area, the church's battle is a battle to see um, not just people coming to faith in Jesus, but that the Gospel would go forth and you would see Turks and Kurds begin to worship together. But racial tension is not just a global issue. You would have to almost have your head in the sand to not understand how it is an issue in America today. Whether it is the major divide on immigration, or whether it is what has led to many different marches, or even some rioting showing just how polarizing these issues are regarding the death of Michael Brown and of Eric Garner. Racial tension is inescapable. And what happens is because of history, because of, I think, a better understanding of how important every human life is, when Michael Brown and Eric Garner happened, 
Most black churches spoke up. And most white churches were silent. There's a news flash for you. I am a white man. <laughs> I know that might come as a shock to some of you. But I am. That means I'm a part in America of, as it stands right now, a majority culture. I don't know what it's like to be a minority. It means that I'm, I'm limited in my perspectives. But I also feel that it would be unfaithful to the Gospel. Unfaithful to the glory of God. And unloving to my dear friends who are black and Hispanic and those of other races to not speak up as best I can with as limited of a perspective as I have to not speak up on behalf of those who might be oppressed, ostracized, might not be afforded as many privileges as others have. So today, we don't speak up just because it's a social issue. We speak up because it's a gospel issue. And what we hope to see is that in Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ did not die in order that we might remain silent. He died that we might intentionally love our neighbor as ourselves. So, today, what we want to highlight are these couple things. One is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, God has made us one multi-ethnic family. He did it. That's a fact. And number two, God delights to display that one multi-ethnic family through His people. Through the gathering together of His people as the church. He's made us one multi-ethnic family. And He wants to show that off to the world. Through our gathering together in local bodies called the church. So, let's dive into it, shall we? Number one, God has made us one multi-ethnic family. Now, as you study Ephesians 2, throughout the history of Christianity, verses 1 through 10 have become just these beautiful foundational verses that are memorized by so many regarding kind of what is the core of the good news. And it goes like this, verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It means that all humanity, despite ethnicity, despite background, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are male or female, whether you are Hispanic, black, white, Asian, whatever, you are dead. Spiritually dead in your sin. Which means you aren't Going after God, you have rebellion in your heart against God. Our world wants to paint it as no, people are good people. 
But the Bible says that we all are rebels against King Jesus. We all have committed high treason as we not only break commands, which we've all done. If I were to take hands on liars, cheaters, thieves, those who've spoken bad about their neighbor, those who want things that their neighbor has that they don't have, everybody's hand would go up. But not only the breaking of commands, but the placing of anything as primary in your life above Jesus Christ. At that level, we're all idolaters and we're all sinners and we're all broken and there is no hope for us in ourselves. And the amazing news in our deadness is not our ability to rescue ourselves, but God's ability to intervene in our desperation. That when we were at the bottom of the ocean unable to, To rescue ourselves, God comes in and verse 4 of chapter 2 happens. But God, being rich in mercy. Do you know what mercy is? It's kindness towards the miserable. That's us. God being rich, overflowing in abundance, treasures unlimited of mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us. How did He show us He loved us? He sent His Son to die so that anyone who called upon the name of the Lord could be saved. This is good news today, this morning. That God wants to wake us up. That He is rich in mercy. Look at verse 5. Rich in mercy and loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's easy to love someone who loves you back. But what about the enemy? Jesus died for enemies because of His great love for His name and because He wanted a people to treasure Him. And what did He do? Being rich in mercy, verse six or verse 5, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And some of the most hallmark verses of Christianity are verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Simple faith, not work. But through faith in Him. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that nobody may boast in what they've done. The Scriptures are confident that salvation is owing all to Jesus Christ. It's owing to Him. That is the hallmark passages. Those are the hallmark passages that speak of our vertical reconciliation to God. How in His kindness, we who should be enemies justly punished have been turned from enemies to children. Good news. We're adopted into His family. We love the vertical. But the vertical reconciliation, according to this passage, demands Horizontal reconciliation. Book after book after book of the Bible are written to say, if you do not love your neighbor, you are proving that you have never been changed by Jesus. You've never experienced the richness of this mercy. And that is why in the verses that we read, 
He is passionate to say, by grace you have been saved. Now show off that grace to one another. And where does he begin when it comes to showing off his grace? He begins at the front lines of ethnicity. Verse 11, therefore remember at one time you non-Jews. He starts at ethnicity. You non-Jews in the flesh. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from all the promises that were given to Israel. Those weren't your promises because you followed pagan gods. They were Israel's promises. And you were strangers to those promises. And you had no hope and without God in the world. But now something is radically different. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it's He Himself who is our peace. And He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see where He goes? If you've been saved by grace and you are reconciled to God, it will affect how you live together among multiple races and ethnicities. Let's begin with verse 14 and hone in there, for He Himself is our peace. Now friends, in a message like this, it's not only feels like there's a landmine with every sentence. But it's also very tempting for you to not let it land upon the heart in a devotional way, in a way that meets you in your present pain. This verse right here begins here. Because some of you came in here very worried, very sense of there is no peace. And I want to say this passage speaks to all forms of peace. And says that Christ himself is where this is found. Now primarily what he is saying here is you did not have peace with God because your heart and soul were against him. He is speaking of what's called positional peace. You are at war with God. But by grace, through the blood of Jesus, you're no longer at friction. You're in him. And now you are not at odds you're in peace. But the Bible goes on to say that those who are at peace with God have God working for them and in them. So that He is always with you even in your trials. So that He can comfort you in the depth of your pain like no one else can. That He wants you to grow in the community of the church and to be a blessing and to be blessed. He is for you and not against you. All of those give you internal peace and you can go to Him at any time with any pain that you have because He delights to hear from you. All that has been purchased because of positional peace. You should be at odds and you're not. Now He is for you and not against you. This verse speaks to that. But He speaks not only to the peace that we have with God. And the peace that that should experientially give us 
even through the ups and downs of our life. But that peace must be extended to how we live among one another. It must be extended across ethnicities. He Himself is our peace. Why did He state this? Well, the next phrase helps us. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. Both one. He stated this to crush Jewish arrogance of superiority. He stated it to take one ethnic people who felt themselves superior to another ethnic people and to tell them that their pride is misplaced and that the only one who is superior is Jesus and now He has made who, those who were at odds and who were against each other, He's made them one. This statement is meant to crush superiority. It's meant to lead to a brokenness over sin. And it's meant for a Jewish person to look across the aisle at a non-Jewish person and say, we should be at odds no longer because we are one family. Now, when we speak about race and ethnicity, our many in our uh, world, they just use race as a sense of communicating skin color. And that's fine. It's understandable. Uh, we just need to understand that. And it's fine for us to use it that way. But in the Bible, race is, there's only two races. In the Bible, there's the race of Adam. And there is the race of Christ. Spelled out to us in Romans 5. The race of Adam are those who do not trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And therefore will not have an eternity with Him, but will be eternally separated from Him. But the race of Christ is anyone, regardless of ethnicity, who places their trust in Christ. They are promised forgiveness, a family called the church that will be with Him forever in ever-increasing joy. Two races, the race of Adam and the race of Christ. He is passionate to say in this passage, he has made us who were two, one. One family. One family. Now, however, it doesn't mean that it's okay to then walk around and say, oh, well, I'm colorblind. My eyes see no color. Well, then get new glasses because I see color everywhere. Now, if you're colorblind, meaning you can't tell the difference between red and green, that's okay. We're not talking about that. We're talking about some people wanting to say there aren't any differences between cultures. And the Bible speaks directly to that. There actually are cultural differences. There actually are skin differences. There actually are language differences. And those are meant to be celebrated, not pushed under the rug. We know that for a fact because what is the end picture? Do you believe God is powerful enough to say, Oh, well when you're saved and I bring in a new heavens and a new earth, I'm just going to create one ethnicity. Yeah, He can do that. But He chooses not to. 
Instead, he chooses to have someone from every nation, tribe, and tongue and language gathered around the throne as one family worshiping Jesus Christ. That's how he chooses to end it and ultimately begin it. He wants us to be on mission for Him to reach all peoples. The actual Greek word is ethne, ethnicities. He is passionate for us to see differences and to delight in them. To reach across cultural boundaries. To get the gospel to one another. And then, when that gospel goes there, to dwell in harmony, not in opposition. It's okay to have a white church. Okay to have a black church. Okay to have the Spanish church. Okay to have the Turkish church over there and the Kurd church over here. Let's just dwell separately. I praise Jesus. That's not heaven. And He died for more than that. He died so that those who were too Two warring ethnicities might become one multi-ethnic family. That's what the blood of Jesus accomplished. It did not only accomplish peace between you and God and the beautiful experience of personal peace within the heart. It created and mandates horizontal peace. Which is why God says, I get glory when diversity relates in harmony because it shows that He's powerful enough to take warring factions and bring peace. He has made them both one. Jews and non-Jews, one family to crush ethnic pride and superiority. John Calvin says this about this whole passage, just a summary sentence. He says, If Jews wish to enjoy peace with God, they must have Christ as their mediator. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Jesus must be the mediator between us and God. His blood shed makes us have access to God. Now, Calvin goes on to say, But Christ will not be their peace in any other way than by making them one body with Gentiles. Therefore, Unless Jews admit the Gentiles into fellowship with them, they have no fellowship with God. Unless this ethnic group, which feels superior, intentionally brings the arms in and say, we're going to dwell together, you have no fellowship with God. That's Calvin's summary of Ephesians 2. The cross mandates... Intentional, cross-cultural pursuit with the gospel. And so this is why, as a church, we are a church about racial harmony. Ethnic harmony. Whatever phrase you want to use. We're about ethnic harmony. And you need to understand that broadens beyond just what we experience here in our community. When we take the gospel to all the unreached peoples, it is a pursuit for ethnic harmony. It is a pursuit that the gospel would be taken to the unreached. And there is a priority there because when the gospel is taken to those whom have never heard, 
When the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to all the nations, then the end will come. Jesus will come again. That's a quote, Matthew 24, 14. And so we are passionate about getting the gospel across the seas, across ethnic lines to people whom have never heard. That's why we're also passionate to reach into our local universities and to see so many international students coming here and just looking for a sense of community. We have the SIT program where we have many from our group here that are just serving as volunteers on NC State's campus to do cultural events, to make friendships, and ultimately, hopefully, to share the love of Jesus Christ with people who might not have ever heard it. This is a pursuit of ethnic harmony as a church. However, we don't live in Turkey. If we lived in Turkey, our pursuit of racial harmony might look different. But where do we live? We live here in America. America has a history. Our community has a history. And that history falls in significant racial tension along black and white lines. Also recently, some Hispanic lines as we've had many Hispanics move into our community. But today I'm going to speak specifically saying we are a church that pursues ethnic harmony. We want to see Blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics. We want to dwell together in this church body and we want to spread that to the ends of the earth. That's what we're passionate about. But where God has placed us in this time, in this community, finds an acute eye towards black and white tensions. So we are not focusing on black and white tensions because blacks and whites are most important. But because that relationship in our culture is most polarizing. And it has the largest storied history of gospellessness, godlessness, and silence from the church of Jesus Christ in America. You do know this. Historically, in our country, it was the southern white quote-unquote Christians who did the killings and the beatings and the lynchings towards blacks based upon skin color. Based upon a sense of superiority which Christ died to crush. It was whites who acted superior to blacks based upon the color of their skin. It was whites who ran the government who put up barriers for black individuals who wanted to vote. It was whites who, after the Reconstruction era of the Civil War, introduced in the South Jim Crow laws, which introduces a horrific concept of racism, of separation but equal. We're based upon skin color Blacks and whites were separated in where they would be able to shop and where they would be able to eat and where they would be able to be educated and even where they would be able to use the bathroom if that wasn't painful enough 
It was whites who told blacks to get to the back of the bus and called them horrific names if they didn't do so. It was the black individuals who in 1960 sat in in Greensboro refusing to move away from that counter because they felt like there was an inherent right. It's called biblical anthropology. It's like this is good thought of man that all people are created equal. They thought that they had a right to be there and to eat. Rosa Parks, thank God for her, thought she had a right to be on that bus and not have to move in 1954. Which led to the Montgomery boy bus boycott. But it was also in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed which gave blacks the freedom to be in the, sit at the same table with whites that Martin Luther King Jr. states What have we done to his fellow friends who are on the civil rights mission together? What have we done? We have an equal spot at the table, but we can't afford the burger and we cannot read the menu. Many whites don't have a clue of what it is like to be historically for hundreds of years systematically ostracized, put down because of race. Still to this day, it is a disparaging number of blacks that live in our poorest communities and occupy our prisons And aren't afforded the same educational opportunities as others. Should we really wonder why when Michael Brown is killed. Why there's some passion around that issue. In the Twitter world. When there was a hashtag. Black Lives Matter. There were many. Many whites that would come up and they would say, but what about white lives? Don't they matter too? What blindness. What racism. Can't we just celebrate that black lives matter? Can't we just be broken over a teenage black boy being killed? If his life was spared... I was listening to one black pastor. His name is Thabiti Anyabwile. He used to go by Ron Jones. Okay, he grew up around here. He changed his name because he converted to Islam, but then was converted to Christianity and now is a pastor. He said, when Michael Brown's list, this list of how he had broken into things and how he, was, he had stole things and, and just this list that kind of portrayed him as a thug, he said, Thabiti said, That was my list. That was my list. That was me. I want to be broken when teenage lives are cut down. Because it's the gospel that needs to get into these communities. To show that Jesus specializes in taking those who have lived 
lives that are not pleasing to God and they're restored and they're changed. But I'm so broken when a white community begins to be defensive rather than broken. My prayer for police officers, and I thank God for them, I thank God for them. But I do believe that some treat our black brothers and sisters different because of race. I hurt. And what I want and pray for our police officers is that there would be a brokenheartedness when crime is committed. A brokenness, not a hatred. Because Jesus Christ He died for those who were dead in trespasses and sins. And if I ask for a raising of hands in this room, as far as I know, that's every one of us. Every one of us on the planet. That's what the Scriptures say. There needs to be more of a tenor of brokenness. There is racial tension and racism still today. Every single person in this room is a recovering racist. Including myself. Let's be really clear. We need the gospel to wash over us. To help us to see and delight in cultural differences. Rather than acting as if our culture is superior. And Paul's stance in the scripture is that you cannot just call yourself one family. You must fight to be one family. It's easy to say you're family. It's hard to be family. That's why he goes on in the passage to say that he has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility and abolished the law of commandments and ordinances that he might in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. That's why he did that. Jews and Gentiles, they were separated. The Jews were given a unique place in history that God saved them and pointedly worked in their lives as a people. And the Gentiles were set apart because following other gods, God wanted to show off what it was like when He worked and He wanted to show an antithesis between those who were following God and those who were not. And there were commandments and laws that were geared to govern them as a people. When Christ came, He abolished those laws that Jesus Christ might show the bridges between Jew and Gentile, He is the one new man. And when we're in Him, we're together. And we're together as one body, it says, in the church. That's why it says later on in Ephesians chapter 3, I'll read verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. That Paul was not okay for us just being family in name. But if the wall had been broken down, we must fight to be family in reality. And so he says, Paul, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, no sense of superiority there. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, those who in their past worshipped foreign gods. 
Those who in their past were murderers and thieves. But God has placed me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to them. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now look at verse 10. I preach a gospel to pagans, which every one of us are apart from Jesus. Why? So that through this one new people that I make called the church, the manifold wisdom, the multifaceted You could even say the multicolored wisdom of God might be shown off. His wisdom is more than multi-ethnicity, but it is not less. And this word manifold, it's the picture of the many facets of a diamond. And the many facets of the diamond of the church of Jesus Christ is that it's multiple cultures dwelling together in one family. And that is meant to be displayed in the church, it says in verse 10. So we must, as a local body, fight to look like our community. Not just dwell in a sense of comfortability with those who might share a similar culture or background or history. So not only did God create one multi-ethnic family, but He delights to display. That's the key verb. To display that multi-ethnic family in the church. Do you know that in America today, a multi-ethnic church is defined by 80-20. of a majority and 20% of a minority. And that means that Following that 80-20 rule, only 7.5% of churches in America, out of 300,000 churches, 7.5% of churches can fit that definition of multi-ethnicity. We have so far to go. Do we really believe that displays what this passage communicates? Do we really believe that? I believe Jesus died for more. He died that we might together learn from one another. That we might together pour into one another. That we might together be famous. And do you know this has been God's heart all along? He talks specifically. He talks specifically to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and said, you cannot be okay with being the majority culture. I'm paraphrasing, right? But you must have an eye towards The sojourner. That is the non-Jew who was going to be among you. You must have an eye towards the poor, towards the fatherless, towards the widow. And you must treat them as a part of your family, it says. And if you don't believe me, let's look at it together. Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34. Listen. 
to what God says and what He anchors it to. He says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, okay, stranger, share a different culture, they're not Jewish. You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. As one of your very own. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers once in the land of Egypt. And I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget where you are apart from me. Now stop treating people with superiority and start treating them as yourself. That's wisdom. That's what God has for the people of God. And when the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you see how God communicates the priority of loving God above all, but how it necessitates intentionality among those who might be the minority or those who are not like you. Look at it in Deuteronomy 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you for your good. We all can say, Amen. I know that my chief end is to live for the glory of God and to love Him above all things. And he says, that means something. Here's what it means. It means that you love what God loves. Verse 14, Behold to the Lord your God, behold heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Yes, you have a special place, but circumcise your heart and don't be stubborn anymore. How are they being stubborn? Look at it in verse 18. This God, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And He loves the sojourner. This is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and almighty. He loves the sojourner. He gives food and clothing. He says, therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. To swear allegiance to God was to have a keen eye towards the minority, the oppressed, to listen, to be a learner, and to treat as yourself other cultures. This has been God's heart all along. And so God demands That we are not just to be a generally welcoming people, but an intentionally pursuing people across cultural lines, loving our neighbor as ourselves. This message is a love your neighbor message. And if God has said, I died to bring reconciliation, if I've died to bring reconciliation, then you must be my voice. My body, you must be my hands and feet of reconciliation. I must admit, to my shame, that 
in the past when I would hear of hear racial slurs or racial jokes, I wouldn't stop them. When I see things on TV, I would say those things, you know, that's bad, but wouldn't do anything about them. It was something that was sad for the black community. Until the black community became my friends and my family. James Lorette, a pastor in Memphis, says proximity begets empathy. Our white culture does not understand the pain because many of us are not close to the pain. Have you ever been, I know our black brothers and sisters in here, our Hispanic brothers and sisters in here, our Asian brothers and sisters in here have. Have you ever been a minority in a room? Have you ever walked in and all that you saw around you were another ethnicity? I remember going to a birthday party for my next door neighbor, Miss Hedgepath. Her daughter comes to this church and I remember she was turning 90. And they invited my family to the birthday party down at John P. Top Green Community Center. And I walk in and there is not another white person in the entire room. And I'm in there. And the Lord just struck me with, this is how my black brothers and sisters must feel in a sea of whiteness. You begin to ask yourself, should I be here? Do they want me? Do they think that I don't like them or I'm offensive? You just begin to second guess everything and you you feel really uncomfortable and there's a sense that you might want to not be there anymore. But I'll never forget. i never forget being in that room. And Miss Hedgepath had a birthday speech and she shared her speech and she says, and my neighbors are here teaching generations now. My neighbors are here. And although they might be different skin color, we all bleed red. They asked me to come up and to share. I was intimidated by that. Just like I'm intimidated about giving this message today. But it was so good to be a part of a family of a different culture. And for years, there has been an intentional pursuit to know and to understand and to love and to not act as if there's a white savior complex, but to delight in a culture to make friends. But I tell you, I've been on the receiving end of racism. I've walked in a Walmart in Tennessee where I grew up with my multi-ethnic family. I have two African children. And I've had people look at us not with joy, but with angry looks on the face. I've seen whole restaurants, little small restaurants, totally go silent when we walk in the room. And when it's just that happens to blacks in general, it's easy to turn off the switch. But when it's family... When it's 
People have names when you have relationships, when you've wept with these people and cried with these people and spent time with these people. All of a sudden, you're ready to rise up in arms. Arms of prayer. Arms of brokenness. Arms that want to say, I want injustice to go away. I want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Arms of love. We must fight for proximity with one another. One strong action point is that we listen to one another. Is that we have conversations with one another. We hear each other's stories. We pray for one another. I know there is, in our culture, there is moral responsibility and there are also systemic injustice. And some ethnic groups want to hone in on moral responsibility. This community needs to change. There needs to stop being crime. Yes, yes, yes. But to the forgetfulness of history and systemic injustice at varying degrees in varying places. It varies in different cultures. But in the South, it's still a prominent thing. We must fight on both fronts. We must fight on both fronts. There was a pastor, Vody Balkum, African-American pastor in Texas, and he talked about growing up in L.A. And he said that as he grew up in L.A., there were two things that were remarkable. One was that he lived in very high gang activity. People driving, drive-by shootings, there were black-on-black crimes like crazy. He said it was just a scary place to live. And he said, I just remember how much I hated just all the violence and how fearful I was. But he says there was something else, too, that was marked by that time. Whenever there were killings and drive-by shootings, there was always my grandmother or mother figures. Sadly, it wasn't father figures many times. He said that would pull him aside and say, do not live that way. Do not be one who lives against God's commands. One who would give discipline in order that they might live a God-honoring life. And friends, there needs to be a hatred for the fact that our prisons and our poorest communities and the educational opportunities and even some work opportunities, as many are saying, even the tech world is deficient of African-American employment. This is from history that fuels these things. We've got to hate that and we've also got to call strongly for moral responsibility. We need our black brothers and sisters to step up in the community and to hate sexual promiscuity just like we need our white brothers and sisters to stand up and hate sexual promiscuity. It needs to not be divided on racial lines. It needs to be divided upon the cross. And Jesus says, live for me and your life will not end in destruction. But we need to be broken, not accusatory. We need to be part of the solution, not pointing fingers at the problem. We need to pray for those like Michael Brown. We need to intervene. We, not whites, not blacks, not Hispanics, but one family. That's the we. Not us and them any longer. The blood of Jesus costs too much. It's a we. It's a we. And so I do speak 
ever so briefly, specifically to my black brothers and sisters and just say, we need your patience. Endurance. Because, let's be honest, whites struggle to know how to talk about race even if they want to. They get awkward. Conversations get awkward, right? Some of you have been squirming while I've been talking. And you've just been almost sick to your stomach. Like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he did this. I've already said, I'm limited. But by the grace of Jesus, we cannot be silent anymore. We can't look at the pains of our community and be silent anymore. We must have a conversation. We must have a conversation. And it's going to take our black brothers and sisters enduring with some stupid things said out of good hearts. And it's going to take our Hispanic and Asian and black brothers and sisters to endure. For what I pray, they become a cultural majority in this church. Whites become a cultural minority in this church. But whether that happens or not, The pursuit is the joy. We want to be one family by the blood of Jesus. By His grace. Not living in pity. Not living in ignorance of history. But living in compassion. Living in love. Because that's what Christ died for. Let's pray together. Father, I love You. And I just ask that You would come to us. That You would come to us. I pray for relationships here in this church to not only be deep friendships, but to be cross-cultural friendships. I pray, O God, that there would be a strong sense of our need for Jesus in this church. That we would hone in on His salvation and His love for us and that we would live in His freedom and that we would live for His glory. Because, oh God, how I just pray. I pray that you would protect us from hearing this as a social agenda and hear it as a gospel issue. Oh God, please protect us from making this about multi-ethnicity and and help us to make it about the glory of your name. Your fame is at stake when we live segregated lives. Your fame is at stake when one group seems to be more oppressed than another. Your fame is at stake and we want love to be what we are known about as a church. And so, Father, just help us. Help us to have conversations. Help us to listen. Help us to pray. Help us to be patient. Help us to endure for years together. And we pray that for your glory, you would help us to shine. Shine off your multicolored, multifaceted, manifold wisdom. To the world. We pray this so that you get glory in Christ's name. Amen.